We thank you, blessed Lord, for the privilege of being at your feet. We thank you that by the blood of Jesus Christ and his righteousness, these feeble tongues can give you praise and worship. We thank you, dear Father, that we live in a country where there is still freedom together like this as your children into a family to give you worship, to encourage one another. And Father, you know my heart's desire. I have poured it out to you so many times, Lord, I trust that tonight you will accomplish your will. Jesus Christ will be glorified and exalted. And Father, melt our hearts before you that we will be tender as we think of you. Thank you for those who lead us in the ministry of song before you, the musicians, the voices. Our worship leader. Thank you for the pastors of this fellowship who watch over the flock to care for them, protect them, guide them, nurture them. And we thank you for these days. Days together to be encouraged and we trust to be refreshed. And I do ask, Father, that these days not finish when we finish, but these days will have an impact on us that will last into eternity for your pleasure and your glory. It has been our joy to be with you for these days. They have seemed so very short, and it's been wonderful to have fellowship with Don and Gail to stay in their home on the cove. And we have enjoyed the fellowship with them, and their hospitality has been superb, and we're very thankful. I enjoyed being with the staff yesterday for lunch and uh, getting to know them a little bit. And I'm grateful for your church. I will go home thankful for this experience of being in Wynn Baptist Church. I didn't even know where Wynn is. I had to look up on a map. But I can assure you, I will not forget where Wynn is now because it's been such a joy to be with you. Jesus Christ was the eternal Son of God, fully divine with all the attributes of divinity. Omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, eternity, infinity, unchangeableness. It was when he was born 
they would call his name Jesus. And so the eternal Son of God became a helpless baby. That's hard to comprehend. He never lost his divinity, but he added to it humanity. A hundred percent divine, a hundred percent human. But when he emptied himself to become a human being, he chose to live just like you and me. He would not use his divine powers for himself. He would depend on his Father for everything just like we have to. He was not omniscient. He was not omnipotent. He was not omnipresent. He could only do what the Father wanted him to do. He said the Son of Himself, the son of himself can do nothing. He said he looks into heaven and see what the Father was doing, and then he did it. He did not know everything. He only knew what the Father revealed to him. He said about the return of the Son of God, he said, no man knows that hour but my Father which is in heaven. And so we want to be clear that he never lost his divinity, but by choice, by choice, he laid down his rights in order to live Strictly as a human being, a helpless baby, growing up through boyhood. He did not know the scriptures. He had to learn them. Like any Jewish boy. When Jesus walked on the earth, people could not see his divinity because of his humanity. I mentioned yesterday, I think it was, that for 30 years, except for his mother, nobody knew who he was. Even his own brothers and sisters, who were really half-brothers and sisters, did not know who he was. They thought he was insane when he began his ministry. Even John the Baptist did not know who he was until God revealed it to him. And so in the days of his flesh, People could not see his divinity because of his humanity. Now, our problem today is the exact opposite. For many believers, we don't see his humanity because of his divinity. And yet, those early disciples had such profound love for the Lord Jesus Christ because they saw him first in his humanity, and then they discovered this is the Messiah, the Son of God. And I must tell you from my own experience, when I saw that this man was absolutely fully human who chose to live a human life like me, My love for him increased a hundredfold. He had a human genealogy. He was born from Mary's womb by natural birth. He had to grow up as a boy into manhood. He increased in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and man. How does the Son of God increase in favor with God? But the Word of God said he did. 
in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. He had to walk by faith and obedience with his family and his business. A carpenter. All his adult life till he was 30 years old. He was truly tempted. And the temptation was as real to him as it is to us. But he never sinned. He only knew what the Father revealed to him. Or what he had learned. In schooling. So human was Jesus. So human that it took Simon Peter nearly two years to understand who this man really was. And then it was only because the Heavenly Father revealed it to him. Even Philip, even Philip, in the last hours said, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been so long time with you, and you do not know me? He was not the kind of man that would turn heads. As I mentioned yesterday, the early church fathers said he was an unattractive man. Isaiah said he had no form or beauty that we should desire him. He did not come as a handsome dude. He came as an unattractive man, an ordinary man in looks. And it was only after he came back from the Mount of Temptation and he read the Scriptures and said some words, it was only then, only then, that they said, no man spake like this. Jesus became fully human to identify with us and only, only, only in his humanity can I identify with him? In Gethsemane, the passage that our pastor read for us, we clearly see Jesus as a human being. Two questions we're going to ask and answer out of the passage of Scripture that Brother Don read for us. And the first question, what was the condition of Jesus' soul as he faced death on the cross? When I was a pastor in my first church, I was very young. I went there when I was 27. And we had a baptistry right where you have one. And in that baptistry was a picture of a painting somebody had done, that popular painting where Jesus, their impression of Jesus was beside that rock with his face turned up and a light from the sky shining on his face. Every hair is in place. His face is just serene and he's praying. Supposedly, a picture of an artist's imagination of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. That painting was a total lie. That is not the way that it was at all. There is no picture that's going to convey what it was like for Jesus of Nazareth in the Garden of Gethsemane. As violent as the garden experience was 
in the movie The Passion by Mel Gibson, it cannot unveil what was happening in the heart and the life and the soul of the Son of God, this man. So what was the condition of the soul of Jesus as he faced his death on the cross? We're going to look at all four Gospels because each of the Gospel writers used different words. And these different words give us somewhat of an insight and which we can never identify with. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 37, it says he began to be grieved or to be sorrowful. That word is to make sorrowful, to throw into sorrow. Do you know sorrow in your own life? Every one of us here have been touched by sorrow. And so Jesus approached the garden and he began to be sorrowful. He was thrown into sorrow. Another word there is in verse 37. It's the word distressed. Distressed. It's a word that Mark also uses. It means loathing aversion. I want you to listen carefully because the gospel writers are giving us an insight by the Holy Spirit to what was actually going on inside of the Lord Jesus. God wants us to know what he was going through. And so he was thrown into sorrow, but there was also a loathing aversion, perhaps not unmixed with despondency. Do you know what it means to be despondent? Have you experienced despondency? Listen, the word that's used is great distress, anguish. It's the strongest of three Greek words for depression. There are people who struggle with depression. Charles Haddon Spurgeon had Severe depression. It would put him in bed. When it says he's been touched at every point as we are yet without sin, he can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He understands sorrow. He understands depression. He has experienced it in Gethsemane. In verse 38, it says in Matthew 26, he was deeply grieved. This is another word. It has the prefix para, peri in it. And it means a mental pain, a distress, which hems him in on every side with no escape. It was enough to cause one's death. And then we turn to Mark. Mark chapter 14, verse 33. The translation that I've used uses the word very distressed. But it's a different word than the other ones that Matthew used. And this word very distressed is horror struck. Terrified surprise. A.T. Robertson says alarmed dismay. So here the Lord Jesus enters the garden. 
Did he know that he came to die? Yes, he said the Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. He had told his disciples what was going to happen to him. He knew what he was headed for. He went to Jerusalem on purpose because he knew his time had come. But suddenly, the reality of what he was facing came on him. Sorrow engulfed him. He felt hemmed in. And as he saw, he was horror-struck by what he saw. Luke describes it with a different word. Luke's word is agonia. This is found in Luke 22, verse 44. Agonia, it's the word from which you get the word agony. It means consternation. It means appalled reluctance. It means mental and emotional struggles. It means a wrestling. That's Luke 22, verse 44. And then if you look at John chapter 12, verse 27, John uses a different word. He uses the word that means agitated it is to stir one's spirit with fear and dread it is anxious distress inward commotion so what was going on in the side of this man were emotions far more Distress far more, anguish far more than you and I have ever known. Enough to cause his death. The picture is quite sobering. Matthew tells us in verse 39 of chapter 26, he fell on his face and prayed. Jewish people normally stood to pray. Sometimes they knelt. But when they went on their face, it was desperation. He fell on his face and he prayed. And this is what he prayed. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He knew that he came to die. But what he was seeing was so absolutely horrible. He asked, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. It's the only place Jesus ever prayed for something that he didn't want to have to do. And yet in that moment, he submitted again to his Father's will. We do not know the other side of the conversation. But it's not hard for me to imagine the other side of the conversation being, my son, my only beloved son, if there were any other way, do you think I would have chosen 
this way. You see, there was only one way. Our sins had to be atoned for, as we sang about tonight. We needed the gift of righteousness. The price had to be paid. The wages of sin is death. God is a God of wrath against sin. Isaiah prophesied it in Isaiah 53. There was no other way. There had to be a sacrifice. It had to be an adequate sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, a lamb without blemish. And Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It was in God's plan. Gushing from his overwhelmed soul, an anguishing soul, came this cry from his heart three times, if it's possible. If it's possible. If it's possible. Luke tells us, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven. This is Luke 22, 43 and 44. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him and being in agony. There's our word agonia. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This gives us a picture of the agony of his soul. It has happened on other times. Great stress has caused the surface capillaries to burst into the sweat glands, so the sweat and blood mingled together. And that's what happened to the Lord Jesus. So intense was the anguish of this man's soul. That the sweat glands were penetrated by blood from the capillaries. And he sweat drops of blood and sweat. And there's an interesting thing. An angel from heaven strengthened him. I have no explanation for that except perhaps one thing. And that is Jesus was always filled with the Holy Spirit. He always had the Holy Spirit without measure. That took care of his inner man. But his body was in such a condition and shape because of what he was facing that he needed strengthening in his body to continue the struggle and the fight. You see, the battle was not on Calvary. The battle was in Gethsemane. This is where he was fighting the battle. And so the angel came. And what is interesting, it was an angel that Jesus himself had created as the eternal Son of God. And that angel came and touched him and strengthened his body. And then he was able to pray more earnestly. Hebrews said, in the days of his flesh, this is 5-7 of Hebrews, 
In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. There's a translation that says, with mighty outcries and tears. Moffat translation says, with bitter cries and tears. Weymouth says, crying aloud and weeping as he pleaded. And John Knox translated it, not without piercing cry, not without tears. And so what was going on in his soul? Pain and struggle like no other human being will ever face or has ever faced. Well, then that brings us to the second question. What was in the cup that Jesus didn't want to drink it? He said, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. What was in the cup that was causing such horrific pain and anguish in his soul? There were two horrible dribs in that cup that he would have to drink. The first thing that he saw was the vileness of our sins. The Son of God had never known sin. He had never known shame. He had never known guilt. He had always been absolutely pleasing to his Father. There was not a spot, stain, wrinkle, or blemish in his soul. He was absolutely pure, perfectly pure. If I had a jug of water, pure, pure water, and I took an eyedropper and got some of that good old Louisiana swamp water and put one drop in that jug of pure water, would you drink it? That one drop of swamp water would pollute the whole jug of water. Jesus had never known guilt. He had never known shame. He had never disobeyed. He had walked perfectly in faith. And what he saw was the fulfillment of 2 Corinthians 5.21. He has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He recognized that in that cup was all the sins he would have to drink. He would have to drink the sin of your anger. He would have to drink the sin of your addictions. He would have to drink the sin of your rebellion. He would have to drink the sin of immorality. He would have to drink the sin of pornography. He would have to drink the sin of greed, the sin of jealousy the sin of bitterness, the sin of unforgiveness. He would have to drink the sin of a husband and wife that are always at each other's throat. He would have to drink the sin of a father who did not raise his children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. He would have to drink the sin of lustful thoughts. His spotless soul would be polluted with your sins and mine, every single one of them.
and he would be made sin. Much like when in the Old Testament when they had the scapegoat and the priest would put his, the high priest would put his hands on the head of the goat and he would confess the sins of the nation over that goat and then a man would take the goat and lead that goat to the back side of the wilderness and he would leave that goat out in the desert and then he would have to completely bathe and put on clean clothes because he was so polluted by the sins that were symbolically put on that goat before he could ever come back into camp, Jesus became the goat. And the father, the father, not an earthly priest, but a father, a father in heaven who loved his son, had to put the sins on his son. And he became polluted. Polluted with all of our sins before a holy God. He despised the shame of becoming sin. That's Hebrews 12, verse 2. He endured the cross despising its shame. He would drink the septic tank the septic tank of our filth. Each of our sins he drank into himself in order to be sin for us. What else was in that cup that would cause such anguish desperation that he was sweat drops of blood. The cup was brimming with God's wrath against sin. You see, God is a God of wrath against sin. Romans 1 verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness right through the Bible. It speaks of the wrath of God. God is a God of wrath against sin. I spoke about this in a pastor's conference. And one of the pastors came up to me afterwards and he said, I have a hard time thinking about God being a God of wrath. God's a God of love. I didn't say this to that pastor. I wish now I had him. I didn't think about it at the time. But I should have said to him, sir, would you take a razor blade and cut all the references to the wrath of God in the Bible? Just cut them out. Because you see, in the Old Testament alone, the wrath of God is referred to over 500 times. Even in John 3, John the third chapter, where it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That very same passage, he said, he who believes not, the wrath of God abides on him. He is a God of love, but he's a God of holiness, a God of righteousness, a God of justice. And he is a God of wrath against sin. And so when the Lord Jesus looked into that cup, he saw not only the vileness of our sins, but he saw the coming wrath of his Father on his own being because of our sin. He would have to receive his Father's wrath. That's due us. Now think of this for a moment. God is omnipotent. It's not just momentary light wrath. It is omnipotent wrath. It's the fury of God that Jesus is going to bear in his own body. And when you turn to Isaiah, you discover who was it that killed Jesus? Was it the Roman soldiers? Well, they were instruments. Was it the Jews? Well, they were instruments. But who killed him, really? Isaiah 53 tells us it was God's will to crush him. 
The Father in heaven crushed his own son. One day I realized something, and that is God had said to Abraham, Abraham, take your only begotten son and go to a mountain that I will show you, and there sacrifice him. It says he rose up the next morning and immediately went to the mountain, took Isaac with him. He bound Isaac and put him on the altar, raised the knife to kill his own son. And the angel said, stay your hand. I see that you will not spare your own son. And Abraham turned, and there was a ram caught in the thicket. And so he went, and he got the ram. He led his son off the altar, which is a picture of resurrection. He took that ram, and he killed the substitute, a ram. But here, there was no substitute. This was the real thing. And where he could spare Isaac, he could not spare his own son. And God himself crushed his son in wrath because of our sins. Indeed, the Father used sinful instruments. Bruce Milne, a theologian, New Testament scholar, says, speaking of, speaking of Jesus' mental anguish and physical torture and excruciating death, he wrote these words, beyond all that he must also face, he must also face the Father himself, the one to whom he had been inseparably bound for all eternity, not in the warm embrace of his everlasting love, but in the terror of his holy and righteous wrath. And someone suggested, one theologian suggested, for the first time on the cross, the Trinity was split. The Father looked at his Son wrath because he had been made sin with your sins and mine and Jesus said to Simon Peter in John 18 verse 11 shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me. And drank it. He did. He drank all your sin, iniquity, and transgression until there was no more. He drank all of God's wrath, his Father's wrath against your sin and my sin until God's justice was fully satisfied. He drank it until that dreaded bitter cup was totally empty. Not a single drop remained. He drank every sin. He drank every ounce of God's wrath. With every tear, with every piercing cry, with every soul-shaking dread and loneliness, with every drop of sweat and blood, with every anguish of his soul as he drank the pollution of your sin and mine and the fullness of his Father's wrath against our sin, he was saying, 
my dear child, I love you with all I am and with all I have. God says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. On a balcony of space stepped a pure and holy God. In awesome solitude he stood alone, not one faint star to give him light, just endless darkness, it was blackest night. But somehow in the darkness he could see. He saw mountains high and lofty. He saw valleys lush and green. He saw babbling brooks and wildflowers grow. He even heard a robin sing. Then he felt a strange compassion as close to love as pain could be standing out there in his tomorrow. He saw me. He saw me in his likeness. He saw me just like him, pure, clean, and holy, spotless, white within. Then he saw me bound in heavy chains and longed to set me free. But he knew if I became like him, he must become like me. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. You'll never see the real love of God until you see the horror of your sin. You'll never really understand how God loves you till you see what Jesus went through in Gethsemane and the cross. I wonder tonight if you need to thank him. Just thank him. I wonder tonight if You need to say, Lord, I'm guilty of this sin, and I want to thank you that you drank it for me. And I need you to cleanse me. I say with David, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I say with David, remember not the sins of my youth. I wonder tonight if you sat there and you've heard all of this, but your heart's not touched. It's so hard. There are no tears anymore for your own sin. And there are no tears anymore for what you do to the Lord Jesus by every sin you commit. And I wonder tonight if you need to say, Lord, I desperately want you to fill me with your spirit. Your Bible is not alive and fresh to me. Praying is more of a chore than a delight. You seem so far away and distant. I want to know your nearness. Lord, I need you to fill me with your spirit. 
I need you to do in me what you did in those New Testament Christians. You fill the Samaritans. You fill those in Cornelius' house. You fill them on the day of Pentecost. I need you to fill me with your spirit. I need you to revive my soul. I don't want to continue with this dull, drab Christianity just going through the motions. I want to know the reality of the Lord Jesus in my life like I've never known him before. I want to know him so that it's like I've been there in Gethsemane with him. I want to know intimate fellowship with you. I want to love you like I've never loved you before. The pastors will be here. I have found in my own life that I have to make deliberate choices. It just doesn't work for me to come and sit in church, get up and go out and do nothing. But I have to make deliberate choices. God's not going to change me unless I make deliberate choices to do whatever I must do to be in his will. I have to make a deliberate choice to say, Lord, today I die to myself. Today you are enthroned in my life. I have to do that morning by morning. Whatever you want today, I'm yours. I have to make deliberate choices to deal with my sin, to be honest with God about my sin. When I know that I failed, when the Holy Spirit says, that is not like Jesus in your life. I have to make a deliberate choice to say, Lord, you have promised me the fullness of your spirit. I don't plan to see anybody yesterday but my wife, but I want to know that you have filled me so that my wife can see and touch and hear the Lord Jesus through her husband today. I trust you today for your fullness because I want you to be glorified in my life even in front of my wife and my children and my grandchildren. And I know that I cannot be that if you don't fill me with your spirit. I'm trusting you for that. You promised it. 